0: Uh, turning your Bibles to First Peter chapter one. First uh, Peter chapter one. We're starting a new uh, series this morning. We'll be in the the book of First Peter um, for the next several months uh, for the the foreseeable future at least. Um, uh, this morning we'll look just at the first two verses of chapter one. I suppose I should have let you just stand. Um, since it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word, let me ask that you do that now. Let's, let's stand together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in and through and by these words in our own uh, lives. Now give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts uh, to respond, and hands and feet to go out and carry the gospel uh, into a world that so desperately, desperately needs it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, as some of you know, some of you perhaps even would would remember um, learning how to write letters in school. You know, there was a time when, when they taught you that. I don't know if they teach that anymore, uh, partly because nobody writes letters anymore. We've got this thing we call email and text messaging, and that has a completely different format. Um, So if you ever forget how to write letters, the beauty is that uh, both Microsoft Word and Pages and any other sort of freeware um, uh, word processing software you might use, they all have templates. Uh, You can just open up the letter writing template and replace, you know, insert name here with, you know, name, not the word name, your name, or the recipient's name. The the text you just fill in, replace the lorem ipsum stuff with whatever it is you want to actually write. Uh, the very existence of a template in Microsoft Word tells you that there is a right way and a wrong way to write letters. Um, We do it wrong. Email fixes what letter writing tradition gets wrong. Think about it. Every time you open a letter from someone, you have to look at the return address or you then have to start at the end of the letter to find out who it's from. You don't read the letter and then wait to get surprised by the author. You always look to see who's writing me this letter. And so we end with really some of the most important information. Because whose writing affects how you hear? Whose writing affects how you understand? Who's writing, somebody close, near, and dear? can write some hard and difficult things that a stranger can't. I love you sounds different coming from a spouse than it does from a cousin. And so, first century Microsoft Word 1.0 had a different template from our Microsoft Word today. It actually starts, it reads, name to, sincerely. That's kind of, it takes our, you know, we end with sincerely Jeff Microsoft word 1.0 that Peter was using, I'm sure on his laptop in first century, uh, ancient Israel, um, began name and then the audience and then the sincerely before you even jumped into the letter. And that's what we have in these two verses. Um, and these two verses answer for us three very important but very simple questions. Who? To whom? How? Notice first, Peter's the one writing this letter. You remember Peter. You know Peter. You've, you've been around Peter. Now, if you've been at Grace Covenant long enough... We have now preached through uh, both Luke and Acts, uh, Dr. Luke's two-volume history of the church from 0 to 65 A.D. Um, And Peter showed up a lot in Luke and in Acts. You remember Peter. He's the one that um, tends to speak before he thinks. He's the one that sort of tends to jump out there and act before he's really sort of taken time to assess the situation. Some of us are thankful for Peter because we see ourselves. I mean, jumping out there, Peter's the one um, Peter's Peter's part of that inner circle with Jesus. Peter, James and John, those three names show up together so often in the Gospels, in the life and ministry of Jesus, which makes you, by the way, wonder how Andrew felt about that, Peter's brother. James and John are brothers. Peter had a brother who was one of the twelve and not one of the three, not one of that inner circle. These are the three who witnessed the only three who witnessed the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was the one who said, hey, this is great. Let's build some tabernacles. Let's build some tents. Let's build little shelters. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. This is good. He spoke too quickly. Peter's the one who underestimated the faith needed to walk on water. He's in the boat with other disciples. He's Jesus coming out towards them and, and he says, hey, that's our Lord. That's Jesus. He hops out of the boat and begins and then looks and sees he's standing on water and begins to sink. He has a tendency to speak and act before he's really thought and thought Carefully and and even biblically about his situation. We, many of us, are thankful for Peter because he reminds us of us. Then again, Peter was also one who had very intimate, special conversations and interactions with Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew 16. Let me just show you one. One such uh, illustration. One such interaction between Peter and Christ. Matthew 16. Beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some people say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he got it absolutely right. But notice it wasn't Peter's brain. It wasn't Peter's smarts. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. You see these special interactions from time to time between Peter and Jesus. And in that moment, he got the answer exactly right. You are indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Of course, Peter was also the one who followed Jesus from a distance, a safe social distance distance to his sham trial and was recognized. And even to the point of, of yelling at a servant girl, I'm not One of them, I'm not with him. You can imagine that feeling in his gut when Jesus turned and looked at him across the courtyard. This is that Peter. This is the guy writing this letter. This is that Peter who, who speaks too quickly who sometimes gets things right, and who has even denied knowing Jesus at all, now writes a letter to his people, to his church, to his bride. And that's helpful for us to know. It's helpful for us to know Who is writing? We know his background. We know his story. We know where he's coming from. And there are parts of this letter that you say, well, because I know he's been through this, I should probably pay attention to this passage. Or because I know his background, I should pay attention to this. There's also parts of this letter that you think, because I know his background, what gives him the right to write such a thing? And that's partly the the beauty of the letter itself. The beauty of the power of the Gospel to restore someone like Peter so that he might write a letter like this. These verses answer who? Who wrote the letter? They also answer to whom did he write? And and you notice there are several the rest of verse 1, there are several ways he describes his audience. He's writing to Christians. But notice the term he uses in verse 1 to those who are elect exiles. These people are exiles they are in a place where they don't exactly belong. That's what an exile is. It's, it's someone who... Now, there is another word he uses in uh, chapter 2. In chapter 2, you'll see sojourners and exiles together, and they have a different sort of nuance, different sort of meaning. In essence, this is someone who is, for a short time, not in his home. But the problem is, they are in their home. They're from Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Some of those names may sound familiar to you. We saw them in Acts 2. There there were people in Acts 2 when, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And there are visitors from all around the Mediterranean Sea there in Jerusalem and and they're there to celebrate Pentecost, and they're hearing the gospel, and they're converted, and then they go home, and they take that gospel message with them. And these people, some of whom are Jewish, they were they were there in Acts two for the celebration of the the feast of Pentecost, and then took this gospel message home uh, to. They're different regions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. But these are also Gentile places. Peter's writing to believers, to exiles, to Gentiles. Churches predominantly filled with Gentiles in these regions. He uses descriptions later in the book that he would never use to describe Jewish people. He's describing people who have grown up without the, the benefits of, of life in the Jewish home and life in the synagogue and life with the temple. But we'll see that later. The places he mentions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, it's it's Turkey. It's kind of modern-day Turkey area. And, and you're thinking, hey, Galatia, I know that one because Paul went to Galatia and Paul's written a letter to the Galatians. This is, a, this is the northern version of Paul's southern version. Paul was basically closer to the Mediterranean, south of the mountains. Peter's writing to groups of people primarily north of the mountain range that, that divides the region, the area. He's writing primarily to to Gentiles, Christians, who are in their homeland, and calls them exiles. But he also uses another term of the dispersion. He uses a word that historically described the Israelites, technically the southern kingdom, the folks from Jerusalem, who were in exile in Babylon. Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you've heard of those guys. Mm -hmm. They were in exile. They were part of the dispersion. The Jewish people who had been taken from their homeland and scattered to to Babylon and, and exiled there for 70 years before they were allowed to come home again. But isn't it fascinating that he would use a decidedly... Jewish Israel term to describe Gentiles? How can Peter take a term that historically applies to Israel and turn around and apply it to the church except that the church is Israel and Israel is the church? It's one people of God. That affects how you see the church today. That affects how you Read the Bible. It's not that God had one plan and that seemed to mess up and fail and so we had to scramble real quick and come up with another plan and created the church and he'll come back to plan. That's not how the, the Bible uses this language. Peter's actually using terms that apply to, applied to Israel once and applying them to believers today. And part of the implication there is that the church and Israel, it's it's all one people of God. You and I are exiles. You and I are at home, or you and I are not at home, even when we're at home. You and I belong, we may have a mailing address, we may have a zip code, we may have... You know, something that says you belong to Athens or to Limestone County or to Decatur or to Madison. But that's not your home. We're exiles. We're strangers in a known land, you might even say. We don't belong here. We don't fit in here. At least not as the world stands right now. Oh, we... We, we will inhabit the earth. It will be recreated and redeemed and restored in every possible way when Christ returns. And it will be our home, but it won't be like this anymore. You and I are strangers. You and I are exiles. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel out of place even around people you belong with? you ever have that sense of I don't belong here these people who are my people are not my people we may have the same zip code we may live in the same neighborhood we may live right next door to each other but we're not we don't belong to the same place the same people you and I are not of this world we are strangers and aliens we're exiles living where we live in fact just back up to hebrews chapter 11 real quick let me show you and it's just a couple of pages just go through james and then a couple of chapters in hebrews and you're there hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 13 we read these all in this hebrews 11 that great Hall of Faith chapter. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. There they are, strangers and exiles. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to go back. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. You you can almost picture Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, who really didn't belong in London. They belonged in Narnia. Farther up and farther in. Except for Susan. You and I are strangers... And exiles, even in a land we know and know well. But but Peter uses another word, and it's it's a word that some of us may not like. It's a word that many in our context, in our city, and, and in the world today, do not want any part of. He doesn't simply call them exiles. He calls them elect exiles, chosen from before the foundation of the world. I know people don't want to use the, this this concept of election to say that God, that the, the the doctrine of election or predestination, it can't be true. It can't be right. And yet Peter here has no qualms at all, calling these saints elect exiles, chosen by God. We could turn. This is a this is a theme throughout all of Scripture. We could turn to Deuteronomy seven and see where God tells Israel. I chose you. You didn't choose me. And I didn't do it because you were bigger or stronger or faster or better looking or wealthier. I did it because of my grace and my mercy, because I set my love on you. We could see principles, examples of this in the Gospels, even where Jesus says to the disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you to be my disciples. There are many today who do not like the idea, who find this doctrine of election to be a difficult pill to swallow. Uh, We say that it's unfair. We say that it's unloving. Uh, We say that my God would never choose some and not choose others. But it's interesting that Peter's God does. Peter has no problem writing to the elect exiles in asia in turkey that's the picture in scripture god initiates every relationship god initiates all the time that's why we begin our worship service with a call to worship god initiates even that and we're going to see in just a minute that that salvation is truly all of god's grace and God always initiates. Now part of the problem is, let me just sort of take this little side road for a second. Part of the problem is we have this notion that, um, that God chooses based on us based on who we are. We think of it sort of God being willy nilly randomly choosing or like the, I think it was a Capital One commercial I saw the other day. You know, kids on the playground, they're getting ready to play basketball. Two kids get to be captains, and they, you know, you rock, paper, scissors to see who gets to pick first. And you always pick the guy that's the best, or the girl that's the best first. And, you know, that's, in basketball, I was always picked last. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't shoot. Uh, it's kind of important in basketball. Um, and, and in this commercial, this kid kind of looks at the group of kids and goes, I'll take Barkley. And it's Charles Barkley. And it's like a group of kids, and it's Charles Barkley, great basketball player. And he starts talking trash. Yeah, I still got it. I told you I'd get picked first. I told you I could still play. That's not the way the doctrine of election works. None of us is better than anyone else. None of us is like none of us shows up and goes, good thing you picked me, God, because I it doesn't work that way. We're all we all deserve eternal punishment for our sin. And it's only by his grace that anyone is brought to saving faith in Christ. And it's it's not based on us. It's based on his own grace and mercy and love. We see who's writing, Peter. We see to whom, elect exiles of the dispersion in Asia. And lastly, if that's true, how can Peter, of all people, write this letter? Or, How can Gentiles be included into the household of God and considered exiles in their own land? How is anyone brought to saving faith in Christ? Look at verse 2. Peter does in one verse what Paul does in one sentence, which is like 9 or 10 or 11 verses in Ephesians 1. The simple answer is because of the grace, mercy, and love of the triune God. Notice that Peter turns his attention to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it was the Father foreknew, the Father predestined, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies that salvation to us in time and space. Your your afternoon, your Lord's Day afternoon assignment is to read Ephesians one, and and you'll see there's what's what's I think it's verse four to eleven that is I think all one sentence in Paul's uh, Greek. Um, Peter does it in one short sentence but points our attention to the fact that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all at work, are all involved in ordaining and accomplishing and applying our salvation. The Father foreknew even before the foundation of the world. He set his affections on us and ordained the salvation of his people. But those chosen people were brought to saving faith in Christ by the work of the Spirit. In time and space, we're sanctification, this sanctified by the Spirit, or in the sanctification of the Spirit. Merely, simply means set apart. It's actually the same. The root of that word is actually the same word as as holy. Actually, set apart uh, for uh, for our salvation, for that, uh, for faith by the Spirit. But notice that our salvation is accomplished by the Son. It's His blood that was shed. It's His blood that sprinkles us clean. It's His blood that applied to us makes us whole. It's His blood that applied to us forgives us for our guilt and shame and for our sin. It's His holy life. It's His righteousness that we need. It's His death, His sacrifice on our behalf, in our place, paying the debt that our sin deserves, despite the fact He committed no sin whatsoever. So we, having been sprinkled with His blood, are made clean and declared whole and forgiven by God. The Father ordains. The Son accomplishes. The Spirit applies. In other words, salvation is all of God's grace. We can claim zero credit for our faith and trust in Christ. Peter's just pointed us to Father, Son, and Spirit. And and our salvation is rooted and grounded in the work of the triune God. Let me make a few applications from these two verses. First, uh, this morning, if you're here and have never trusted in Christ for your salvation, then then look in faith to Christ. Be sprinkled with His blood and forgiven... uh, set apart for obedience to Jesus to to trust in him and believe on him as he's offered in the gospel that promise is to you and and God will deliver God will free God will forgive you for your sin believe in his life his death on your behalf and you will be saved a second application If salvation is all of God's grace, then there's no room for pride and arrogance in the Christian life. There's no place for us to look down on unbelievers as though we are somehow smarter and better because God picked us or because we decided to follow him either way. There's no place for arrogance and pride to look down on unbelievers because they don't trust in Christ. Instead, we look with love and pity and long for them to come to saving faith. We love them. We long for them to embrace the Gospel. But we don't disdain them for their lack of faith. If salvation is all of grace, then there's no place for arrogance and pride in our salvation a third application there are always people who wrestle with who doubt who struggle with embracing the fact that god loves them there are always people who think how can god's love how can god love someone like me There are always people who wrestle with doubt and and assurance of their faith. This passage reminds you that God loved you even before you were you. And if that's the case, you can't stop him from loving you. If he loved you from before the foundation of the world, knowing full well who you were, you being you, can no longer can can make him no longer love you he's not in the business of saving people who have gotten their life squared away and cleaned up and all nice and neat and tidy he's in the business of saving people who cannot do that at all if that's you run to christ there find assurance in his Eternal love for you. If the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have conspired together to bring you into a relationship with them, then who in the world is going to take you away from them? They already love you completely. They already love you perfectly. Run to that truth when you wrestle with doubt and assurance. A fourth application, just quickly. Peter holds out for us, he holds out for his audience, the same salvation he knew. How can Peter, who denied Christ, who three times, I mean, even to the point of cursing at a girl, saying, I don't know him, how can he write this letter? because he too was forgiven. He too had another special intimate interaction with Christ in which Christ restored him, fixed the relationship, forgave him for his guilt and his shame and his sin, and restored him to his office of, of apostleship, discipleship, so that he might then proclaim the gospel that he alone needed and needs and believes in other words god doesn't fix people who are already fixed he fixes those who are broken and lastly let me make this application this world is not your home i hope that we all at some point or another feel out of place i hope that there's time that there are times when When we all feel like, this is just not where I belong. Hopefully in you, that is that sense of, uh, I belong in the world to come. And it's, it's rearing its head, it's sort of showing itself, it's manifesting itself in such a way that you feel out of place. You feel disconnected from the world around you. We may be tempted to look to elected officials. We may be tempted to look to governments. We may be tempted to to look to politics or to social structures or whatever to save us. Earthly kings and princes. If that's where you're looking for your security, you're looking too low. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and to Him alone. Look to the city whose builder is Christ. Look to the better country. Live in the hope of that coming city as strangers and aliens, even in this one. May God grant us the grace to live in this world while belonging to the world that is yet to come. Let's pray together.